0: Well, this summer, did you hear about somebody by the name of Luke Aikens? Almost sounds like a country music star, but it's not that I'm, that I'm aware of. At the age of 42, he did a first in history. There he is. You have to look closely at this picture, but if you look at this guy, he has some padding, it looks like, and that type of thing. But he was the first one to jump out of a plane without a parachute or without a, uh, what do they call it, a, a wingsuit. Uh, back in 2012... Somebody else crazy enough, uh, Gary Connery, wore a wingsuit to aid in his landing. But Luke decided, no, I'm going to do this without any parachute, without any wingsuit. I'm just going to jump out of a plane at 25,000 feet. And so he performed this stunt in Simi Valley, California on July 30, I believe it was, of this year. And after a two-minute free fall, reaching speeds of 120 miles an hour... He landed in this, in fact, you can see it in the bottom of that corner. See that little square? That's a net designed to catch Luke uh, Aikens. If we advance here, let me turn this on. That's part of my problem. (laughs) There's the net catching him. Uh, It was 100 feet by 100 feet square with four compression air cylinders. Don't ask me what that means. But somehow it was designed to gradually slow him down after impact. And, of course, he survived to be the first to jump out of a plane without a parachute or a wingsuit. And, yes, he's married, and there he is uh, holding his little son. The question you might be asking, why? I don't have answers for you (laughs) as to why. But that would seem a little counterintuitive, wouldn't it? I mean, it's hard enough for me to wrap my mind around this idea of putting a chute on my back and climbing up, 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 and then propelling myself out of a very safe environment. You know, the doors open and all this noise and all the rest, and I'm going to jump, but then you take the parachute away. Now, he'd done some 18,000 dives before, and so I imagine he knew exactly how to maneuver himself But still, rather counterintuitive. Doing something that I think, even at that moment, you'd think, what am I doing? Well, today I want to look with you at a story where God asks somebody to do something that is very counterintuitive. Didn't make sense from all human reasoning. But sometimes God asks us to do those things, doesn't he? We call it faith. We call it trust. The world calls it insanity sometimes. But I want to look with you at a story found in 1 Kings chapter uh, 17. And we've been going through this idea of sacrifice in this series for the last couple months now. And this is the last piece, sacrifice for the gospel. We've had this annual sacrifice this past week, this week of prayer. Asking how the Lord might be asking us or calling us to sacrifice for the gospel. And at the conclusion here, we're going to take up an offering. Yes, that's true, but I also want you to be thinking about other ways that God might be asking you to sacrifice for the gospel and for his greater good. And so we're going to start this morning in 1 Kings chapter 17 and verses 8 and 9 to begin here. This is the story of Elijah and the widow. And so we read there in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 8, Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. Now you may recall that prior to this story, that the monarchy of God's people has only gone downhill. There is apostasy everywhere and Elijah is called to go before the wicked king Ahab. You remember those stories? In fact, in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 33, we're told that king Ahab is so wicked, he sets up this wood image, and did more, the verse says, to provo- provoke the Lord than every king before him. Things were looking pretty bad. But keep in mind, church, that an Ahab always calls forth an Elijah. An Ahab always calls forth an Elijah. So Elijah goes before the wicked king and says there will be no, no rain until I say, and then before the king even gets to know what's happening, he disappears, he's gone. And God tells him, go up, I will provide for you here at the brook Cherith. Remember that story? And it's there at the brook Cherith, That Elijah is fed, not just once a day, but twice a day. He has his water, he has meat, and he has bread, and the ravens bring it all to him. Fascinating story. Where did the ravens get it? I don't know. Perhaps from the king's table. I don't know. But they bring it to him twice a day, as if to say, Elijah, I will provide everything for you. I want you to learn full and complete dependence upon me for everything. Where's your next meal coming from, Elijah? Well, I don't know. Maybe a bird will bring it to me. Good one. No, really. And day after day, twice a day, these ravens would come. But then the story tells us that the brook dries up and God says, I will provide for you another way. I want you to go almost 100 miles, perhaps even more than 100 miles away because we don't exactly know where the brook Cherith is, but we know where Zarephath is. On the coast of the Mediterranean, far west and north, A 100 mile journey when people are wanting and seeking after Elijah, he says, I want you to leave this safe haven and I want you to go. I want you to march to Zarephath. And there I have one of the poorest of the poor, a widow who has nothing and she will provide for you. Perhaps that was a bit humbling, I don't know. You recall that a widow has no financial security, has no husband that will work, that brings in income or provides. She cannot own property. But God sends Elijah to this widow. Interesting, in Prophets and Kings 129, it says, This woman was not an Israelite. She had never had the privileges and blessings that the chosen people of God had enjoyed. But she was a believer in the true God and had walked in all the light that was shining on her pathway. Isn't that interesting? Not an Israelite. Not part of the quote's chosen people of God yet she is living up to all the light she has received and God says in fact I can use her above all these others here that have forsaken me she's the one living up to all the light that she has known another place here testimonies volume three says a heathen woman living up to the best light she had was in more acceptable state with God than the widows of Israel who had been blessed with special privileges and great light, and yet did not live according to the light which God had given them. And so God says, that's okay. I have a widow who's living up to all the light that she knows. She's going to provide for you. Go there. And so picking up our story here again... Arise, go to Zarephath. And so, verse 10, So he, Elijah, arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And she was going to get it. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So, she said, As the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin, a little oil in a jar, and see, I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, easy for you to say. Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first, and bring it to me, and afterward make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall a jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. Now, Elijah's asking a lot of this woman. I don't need to remind you the state of widows. And here she's preparing her final meal. And every mother has within them this strong instinct to provide at whatever the cost. But Elijah is essentially asking her to do what God has just asked him to do. Go to the brook Cherith and rely and depend fully on God. Really, it's the same promise he offers us, isn't it? Isaiah thirty-three sixteen: 16. Your bread and your water will be sure. He promises us that but sometimes we feel like we're gathering sticks for our last meal. Sometimes it feels like we're jumping out of an airplane and we don't even have a parachute. We don't even have a game plan. How's this gonna work out? I don't even know. Your bread and water will be sure. Just do this thing. Bring it to me first. And so the connection could be made, sacrifice for the greater mission of God's church is what is being asked for here. Sacrifice for the well-being of Elijah. Sacrifice for the purpose that he is fulfilling through Elijah. Sacrifice for the redemption of God's people who are in desperate need. Sacrifice for the saving of your own family. Because the promise is given, feed him first, and then you and your household will be provided for. Maybe not everything you want, but certainly everything that you need. Daily I will provide for you. And if you will just walk by faith and not by sight, that's hard for us, isn't it? We'll spend a long time searching for that switch on the wall because we like to walk by sight. We like to see where we're going. We like to know what's there before we get there. But rather she acts in faith. And sacrifices the last of what she has for the purpose of God, for the mission of God. I don't know about you, but I wonder how was this widow able to do this seemingly simple yet incredibly difficult task? How could she follow this command? How could she sacrifice the last of what she had for missions in the gospel? I submit to you, it was because of her relationship with God. Had to be her relationship with God because if she had, she had made a choice to live her life for God, and if God asked her to do something, she had to do it. And because of that choice to live for God, it gave her purpose and meaning and direction and God's character, his purposes were her purposes. And friends, when we have a tight connection and relationship with God, his character is going to be imbued and pour over us and his character will become our character. Isn't that true? The more I find myself in his word and meditating and memorizing and in scripture and in prayer, the more his character becomes my character. I can't explain it, I can't dissect it, it just happens. And this God, that she was living up to all the light that she knew, was now pouring over her, and so this huge request comes in, and she says, I have to do it. But this doesn't make any sense. Well, but I have to do it. In fact, I believe we see some governing principles in her life that we also see in Jesus' life. And you say, no, that doesn't make any sense. They lived a thousand years apart. That's true. But God's the same today and tomorrow and yesterday and forever. And and I think the character of God was formed in this woman. It was possible for her just like it's possible for us. We can't meet Jesus. We can't walk with Jesus. But we can. When we study, when we pray, when we choose to worship and honor him. And by beholding his character, we become changed and transformed to be more like him. Isn't that what it says in 2 Corinthians 3.18? We all beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Isn't that good news? That God wants to transform us, to change us, to form us and fashion us after his likeness and after his character. And so this morning, very quickly, I want to look at four governing, governing principles in the life of Jesus that I believe God replicated in this widow, and I believe he wants to replicate in our lives as well. Is that okay? Four governing principles. Number one, first principle, Jesus chose to make his highest priority to live a life pleasing to God. We find that in John eight twenty nine, and he... Who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please Him. That's what Jesus was about. What pleases the Father? Another one here, Matthew 26, 38. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. This is the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember how Jesus is pleading with his Father and his soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. But he says, oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cut pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Father, I want my life to be pleasing to you. First and foremost, that's my wish. That's my desire. That's my goal. I believe the widow felt the same. Her highest priority was to live a life pleasing to God. If this is what God calls me to do, this is what I'll do. You stop and think about it. This is the problem to solve all problems in your life. Sounds like oversimplification, doesn't it? This is the problem to solve all problems in your life the surrender of the will. That's what it boils down to. Have you said, Lord, whatever pleases you, that's what I want to do. Lord, does this please you, that's what I want to do. Does that govern your and my behavior? Does that principle govern everything that we say? You don't have to debate if something is okay to watch, if something is okay to listen to or to eat. Just be honest with God. Just be honest with God. God, does this please you? Does this honor you? And if you're not sure, you can get on your knees and you can say, Lord, I already made this decision to honor you, to please you in all things. That's what I want to do. That's my highest aim. Reveal to me by your Holy Spirit if this, in fact, honors you or not. And I believe he'll make it plain. I would say in most areas of your life, you already know the answer. Does this bring honor to you? Does this please you? Life principle number two. Jesus chose to make service his ultimate goal. People mattered to Jesus. Jesus didn't live some egotistical, self-centered life. We read here in Matthew 20, verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus' life was a life of service. Which life principle do you claim? Being served or serving? I believe this woman chose to make service her ultimate goal. Isn't that evident in the story? This gal here is Maggie Gabrin. She lived a very affluent life of ease. She was educated, served as a professor of computer science at the American University in Cairo, Egypt. But one day she was visiting one of her adult students in their home. And she was astonished at the poverty that their children and other children around in the neighborhood were living in. Abject poverty. She couldn't believe it. And she said, as she was walking around the slums, she said, I can no longer live a life of affluence. I can't do it. I can no longer continue in this prestigious position as chair of this university And she made a decision to give her life in service to the children that live in the slums in Egypt. And so in 1989, she made that decision, and today she oversees 90 facilities. Every day they feed some 30,000 children, all financed through donations. She's known today as Mama Maggie. In fact, you can get her New York Times bestseller that tells a little bit more about what has taken place. But when asked, what's the biggest challenge you face? Thinking it might be fundraising, thinking it might be all kinds. What's the biggest challenge that you face? She says this, the biggest challenge I face is myself. That's an honest answer, isn't it? The biggest challenge I face is myself to keep focused on living the life of Christ of service. That's what she says. She has committed her life to the poorest of the poor. She has committed her life to service. And Jesus, too, was occupied by a life of service. That was his DNA. And his true followers will be no different, that will be implanted. So life principle number one, pleasing God is my highest priority. Life principle number two, serving rather than being served is your ultimate goal. And life principle number three, Jesus lived a life of self-sacrifice. Not simply just service, but of self-sacrifice. This is a verse we've been looking at for this entire time. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. Jesus' life was a life of sacrifice. I believe this woman, this widow, chose to live a life of self sacrifice. I'm going to do what pleases God. I'm going to live a life of service. And if that means self-sacrifice, I'm willing to do that too. I will make this piece of bread, this cake, and give it to the Lord's prophet first. Dr. Harry Miller was a contemporary of Dr. Kellogg. In fact, he was one of his brightest students. And Dr. Miller felt called to minister in China And Dr. Kellogg didn't like this idea. He says, you're too bright of an individual to go be wasted away in some foreign land like China. China will will just consume you. Don't go. But Dr. Miller went anyway because he felt called by God to go and he established hospitals all throughout China, all throughout the Orient. He helped to develop soy milk. He was a personal physician to Shanghai Shek and many of the royalty he sowed the Adventist principles of truth there in China. And today we have over 400,000 Seventh-day Adventists in China. Largely result because of early missionaries that went and sacrificed everything for Christ. Amen. He's just one example. Life principle number one, I'll do nothing that displeases my Father. Life principle two, serving rather than being served Is your ultimate goal. Life principle three self sacrifice will not be a yoke around my neck, but rather a joy to advance the cause of God. And lastly, life principle number four Jesus lived life with the end in mind. He chose to focus on the end at the beginning. Jesus chose to focus on the end. At the beginning. Make your end goal the purpose of your life. Think about that. What is your end goal? Most people don't live with the end in mind. They live life with today in mind. How am I going to get through today? How am I going to pay my mortgage today? How am I going to deal with the problems of work today? How am I going to pay off my college loans today. You know, many medical students today graduate on average with $200,000 in debt. Choose to focus on the end at the beginning. Live life with the end in mind. What was Jesus' end goal? Well, we read about it in Luke nineteen ten. For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. See the binoculars? He's looking down the road with the end in mind. How do you live your life? Are you living with the end in mind? We all have a relatively short time here on this earth. If the Lord doesn't come and you die, what would you like them to say about you at your funeral? I believe Jesus lived his life not caught up with the immediacy of life. Do you know what I mean when I say that? The immediacy of life. Busyness, hectic, go, go, go. He did not allow the tyranny of the urgent to crowd out the magnificent of the important. He never was controlled by the tyranny of the urgent. Jesus always lived with the end in mind. And I believe this woman is the same. She lived life with the end in mind. If I do this first... I'll glorify God. I'll do all these other things. And he says he'll provide for me. The bin of flour shall not be used up. The jar of oil will not run dry. The Lord will provide for every need. Little does she know it's not just the needs of food. But later in the story, it brings about the healing of her son. You may recognize this is Joni Erickson Tata as a teenager she enjoyed riding horses and hiking and tennis and swimming but when she was 17 years old she dove into the Chesapeake Bay but she misjudged the depth of the water and so there was this tragic accident that left her paralyzed from the neck down she can only remotely use her arms And during her two years of rehab, she experienced anger and depression and suicidal thoughts, along with religious doubts. Maybe some here can relate. Mark Finley got to do an interview with her some years ago for a TV program. And while she was sketching with pencils in her mouth, she does a lot with pencils, and her artwork is mostly with pencils. And uh, he asked her several questions. You know, what's the most challenging part? She says, well, I don't like the taste of the pencils, for one. But he asked her this very pointed question. He says, Joni, do you ever wonder why you weren't healed? And she said, when I first had this diving accident, it was really tough for me. I wondered why I wasn't being healed. People said, you know, if you have enough faith, if you pray hard enough, you'll be healed. But then she said, Mark chapter 1, for me, answered that question completely. Solved it for me. And she talked about how Jesus had been healing people all night long, and the disciples came to him the next morning while he's having special time alone with his father. The disciples come, and they find him, and they ask him to do some more healing, but instead, he leaves. And Joni says he left sick people, and his response is simply this, I must be going on to other cities as well. Because the purpose of my life is to preach the gospel. And Joni says this, The purpose of my life was not to be healed. The purpose of my life was to share Jesus with other people. She's following the principle of living her life with the end in mind. You can find one of her most recent books on Amazon. It's called A Place of Healing, Wrestling with the Mysteries of Suffering, Pain, and God's Sovereignty. But she is living her life with the end in mind. You know, if she actually would have done the opposite and lived with the immediacy of her situation, being crippled, being paralyzed, friends, she would have been miserable her whole life. She would have been bitter, angry, upset, depressed. But she lived with the end in mind, that one day she would be walking and running in heaven, and that Christ had given her the opportunity to share His grace with others. And so again, we've been talking for some time about sacrifice, to put Jesus first in every aspect of our lives. And yes, to do that requires sacrifice. Sacrifice of our time, of our energy, of our resources. Sacrifice of my pride and self-sufficiency. And at times, a sacrifice that is physical in nature. Or even a sacrifice of relationships. And that can be difficult. Perhaps you know how the widow feels. For you too have felt what it's like to gather sticks for your last meal. But in that moment, God whispers, do you trust me? Is your highest priority to please me? Is service your ultimate goal? Are you willing to live a life of self-sacrifice? And will you live with the end in mind? In your bulletin, there's a commitment card. looks like this. There's annual sacrifice. And there's two boxes you can check and there's a place to sign at the bottom. In that first paragraph, it says, in light of this series on sacrifice, I have been convicted that the Lord is asking me to sacrifice my fill in the blank for him. What is God asking you to give up? to sacrifice just write it in a word right there no one's going to look at this but me and this it's fine if it's just something that only you know with that word but what is God convicting you to sacrifice you might write pride in there you might write junk food in there you might write a waste of time in front of the tv or just put tv you can put social media in there what is God asking you to sacrifice perhaps you might write in income thinking I need to work less and spend time with my family more Perhaps you need to write sleep in there. I know I'm supposed to get up and read my Bible, but I just can't seem I just need all the sleep I can get. I just, I I, I, I can't do it. So that's the first part. What is God convicting you to sacrifice for Him? And then these promises by God's grace. I want to specifically surrender that area of my life to Him today. Claiming that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Philippians 4, 13. For I know my God will supply all my needs according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus, Philippians four nineteen. Then the next paragraph. I commit to praying. For the spread of the three angels' message of Revelation fourteen to unreached places and people groups around the world. It is my prayer that people may know, understand, and be transformed by the everlasting gospel and experience the love, grace, peace, and assurance that only God can give. I commit to praying. I would hope everybody could check that box and put your name at the bottom. Now, this has been a week of prayer, and annual sacrifice. In a moment, we're going to be collecting that offering as well. And we're going to do it a little bit in a different way. We have a basket here and here, and I'll direct you how we're going to do this in just a moment. Or maybe I'll just tell you now so you can be thinking about it. Everybody's saying these two will come to the center and go around this way, and you'll file out on these sides and go back to your seat. Does that make sense? And for people on this side, you're actually going to go out to the outside and hit the basket on your way back to your seat, and go all the way back to your spot. Does that make sense? Same on this side, you're going to go to the outside. And so we're going to do that here in a moment. And I hope, and it's my prayer, that you've also been thinking and praying, Lord, what would you have me to give for this annual sacrifice offering um, to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ in places where the gospel has not been and before you ladies pray, we're going to watch a video first. I want to share a few verses before we do that. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish His work. Do you not say, There are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. Do you believe that to be true? And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life. Friends, that's the best fruit you can ever find. Fruit for eternal life. This comes from a and herald. Oh, must Christ, the majesty of heaven, the king of glory, bear the heavy cross and wear the thorny crown and drink the bitter cup? While we recline at ease, glorify ourselves, and forget the souls he died to redeem by his precious blood. No, let us give while we have the power. Let us do while we have the strength. Let us work while it is day. Let us devote our time and our means to the service of God that we may have his approbation and receive his reward. And last passage here, Romans 10, 13 to 15. For whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's good news. Here's the problem. How then shall they call On him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. If you want to support the furtherance of the gospel, I invite you to write in a tithe envelope, or actually this, the loose offering today goes to annual sacrifice, so you don't have to do that. <clears throat> but if you're giving a large gift and you'd like it to be tax deductible, put it in a tithe envelope, put your name on it. Put annual sacrifice offering and give a little more than maybe you typically do for the spread of the gospel. We're going to watch a quick uh, video clip just now that tells us a little bit more about this offering And then I'll give you a few more instructions as we file up here and uh, place not only our gifts financially, but I want everybody to, to think about this card as well. Check what you can, fold it in half and place that in the basket as a gift of sacrifice too. Let's watch that video just now.
1: Around the world today we face many different mission challenges. I think for example of the 1040 window which stretches from northwest africa through the middle east into asia that's where the majority of the world's population live and the fewest christians i also think of the growing cities of the world again where the majority of the population lives and this is a tremendous challenge particularly for seventh day adventists because traditionally we have focused more in rural areas and that's where we have grown our church and as we look at these challenges as we look at the challenges of secularism and postmodernism in Western Europe, Australia, New Zealand, increasingly in North America, we see that we are not sufficient for these things, but God has called us to join him in his mission to make disciples in these areas of the world. You know, not so far from here in the Philippines, There is a place called Kalimantan, and many years ago I met a global mission pioneer there planting new groups of believers. I asked him about his story how he had started and he kind of smiled and he said when I started it was really difficult. There were men running up and down the main street holding the decapitated heads of their enemies. This poor young pioneer had arrived in the middle of some civil warfare to plant a church but there he was and he put Christ's method into practice. He said we have an expression here which, when translated, says, I tread the ground, which means I come here, I become like the people. And that's what we see around the world today. We see global mission pioneers treading the ground like Jesus did in incarnational ministry, rubbing shoulders with people, ministering to their needs, showing sympathy, winning confidence, and bringing them to Jesus Christ. And your annual sacrifice offering makes a tremendous difference in supporting global mission around the world. It makes possible for pioneers to do their work. It makes it possible for global mission centers to help us bridge to people from other religions and cultures. It helps make a difference to lead men and women, boys and girls to Jesus Christ. So thank you so much for your continuing support for global mission through your support of the annual sacrifice offering.
0: Maybe see in the balcony and say, what are we supposed to do? Well, if, <clears throat> if you are willing, you can file out the back and come up this center row and then just come back up that way. If that's too much, we have some baskets up there in the balcony as well. Uh, but I would encourage those that can to come down and be part of putting your contributions into these baskets. And I would hope, and we'll have some deacons. In fact, deacons, why don't you come forward? They're going to dismiss you in kind of a a backwards way. Instead of dismissing you out the back, they're dismissing you out the front. But if these sections will come here towards the middle and file back around that way, and if these outer sections will go to the outside first and file back in the middle, and we'll try and do this as orderly and reverently as we can. But it's my hope that everyone will have a reason to come forward, that everyone will fill out that pledge card and be willing to pray for the spread of the gospel, that everyone will listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit and say, Lord, what do you want me to sacrifice uh, as we move forward in anticipation of Jesus' soon return? Our dearest Heavenly Father, we have answered the call. For the last several months, you've been asking us to sacrifice. But this morning, we have put down an area in our lives that we feel is standing in our way of being closer to you. Lord, we've surrendered that today. We give you that today. And Lord, we've also brought our offerings because we desire to see this work go forward, for lives to be changed and transformed completely by the power of this everlasting gospel. So, Lord, we have given the means entrusted to us to the cause of God, and we devote ourselves unreservedly to your work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse